Hey, Will, how are you doing today? Good. Really excited to start unpacking immigration. It's been a a long month hiatus. I, I haven't taken a month of hiatus probably since I started being a lawyer. So this is this has been refreshing. I mean, it's a very important hiatus. You had a baby girl. Yeah, baby has Miranda. She's on the wall and some of these photos. I don't know if the viewers. Addition to the wall. It's perfect. Yeah, no, I love it. To the wall. Addition to uh, Christy Bellacourt's incredible work, offerings to save the world. Um, yeah, she's uh, growing bigger day by day. I think by the time this airs, she'll be over a month old. And yeah, it's been it's it's been a journey. How have you been, LJ? Like, what are, what have, I know? Thank you for for covering uh, the last <laughs> couple episodes with incredible guests. Uh, I mean, there's been a hiatus as well from the perspective of the podcast. We did post a video. My friend Fiona Zeiger, who is at Erasmus University, uh, she was kind enough to speak to us uh, to give us a bit of a comparative glance of how migration studies essentially looks like from a very sociological, global sociological perspective, because, you know, it's not just in Canada that we have this. And it's interesting to draw parallels as to what is happening in the European Union, for example, on the study permit front. To me, what really struck me as interesting was the fact that, you know, it's not a new pathway. And a lot of people think that, you know, coming to Canada as a student is a new pathway to secure permanent residence. I suppose like historically, institutionally, yes, sure. It's a new pathway in the sense that it gives you added advantages, but it's not new. This has been happening in Europe for a long time. I remember uh, on a personal note, when I was in Geneva, Switzerland, before actually getting at the University of Ottawa, I actually had a letter of acceptance from the University of Geneva for their law program. I was supposed to study there, but you know, when I asked them, okay, so how much is tuition? It's 500 francs per semester. Can you believe that? It's, um, you know, ridiculously cheap from, you know, compared to the North American standard anyway. But then, of course, that's offset by the cost of living in Europe, which is, you know, far more expensive than it would be in North America, for example. And, you know, when I spoke to the admissions officer over at the University of Geneva, they told me, well, you know, a lot of immigrants to uh, Switzerland or to Europe generally would like, you know, sell their houses, sell their properties, Familiar, very familiar stories, Will, uh, mm -hmm. that we hear from our clients ourselves who are coming to Canada. It's a very big investment. Their family invests on them so that they can get a footing in Canada through the education system, secure permanent residence, and hopefully bring their family with them. So yeah, it's it's quite an interesting pivot and uh, quite an interesting discussion with Fiona. That's so. such a fascinating episode. And I know you guys talked about coffee shops and... <laughs> Dr. Fiona seems like someone I would love to have a coffee with. So hopefully bucket list one day to, to meet up maybe in Europe or Philippines or Japan or any of the countries that both of you have. Well, she's have, so she's never have. actually been to Canada. That's oh, one really? of her biggest okay. frustrations. Maybe so maybe she can come here and visit us. Yeah, that's awesome. So before we begin today's episode, I want to recognize again that I'm speaking from the traditional ancestral stolen territories in Turtle Island of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tooth, and Kaikat Nations, where I both practice and my offices are located. I am speaking to you today from the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit. Awesome. So today we're talking about something that I know, LJ, right in the middle of my smack in the middle of my hiatus, actually, <laughs> I think right near my, my baby's due date, uh, there was a uh, 
the, the, the TR to PR pathway launched <laughs> and opened to the chagrin and to the excitement and to the confusion of all those who were involved in the process. I know, LJ, you had a more direct, you know, uh, work on, on, on several of these files and I've spoken to other counsel who actually represented and, and, and managed to submit several dozens of applications. I myself, unfortunately, because of being M- you know, MIA, I, I advised some clients in advance, but it was an interesting process, wasn't it? Very interesting. It was announced on April the 12th, and uh, it was essentially opened on the 6th of May. So April 12th, May 6th, it's not even a month, if you think about it. And the instructions, the instruction guide for the program actually was published on IRCC's website not more than 24 hours before the portal itself opened. So there was a lot of, I wouldn't call it guesswork, a lot of it was intelligent guesswork, I would say, like, you know, a guesstimation in a a sense. People were basically told that there were, you know, these three streams, essentially, for essential workers, both frontline workers and healthcare workers. And then there's a stream for international uh, students who recently graduated from a Canadian designated learning institution. Now, what's interesting here is that because of the existing programs, such as Express Entry, specifically the Canadian Experience class, people had a general idea of like what Canada normally would require from PR applications from those who are doing electronic applications. And I suppose that's one of the interesting things about this application process, Will, was completely electronic. But there's a lot of buts there. You know, 90,000 is a lot. So what was interesting was immigration contracted a third-party supplier in order to build a separate system to accept the application, the applications from all the, the candidates essentially. And that allowed for immigration to not have a system that would crash. Because, <laughs> you know, if there are a thousand clicks per second, for example, that would definitely crash the system. So they sought help from industry experts, which is great. Although there was one interesting hitch at the end of it, the payment system was still inside immigration system. So there was problem essentially for a lot of problem for uh, problems for, for people who were trying to submit who had not yet paid for their fees. And you're right, like I did have several clients who went through the process. I had advised them since the beginning when they announced it. Because essentially, however, you know, a big chunk of my practice is basically shepherding international students to permanent residence or international healthcare or foreign trained healthcare workers who are already here and trying to find their pathway to permanent residence. So I had a theoretical 26, 27 files that would have been eligible for this program for the various streams. In the end, only 14 managed to apply on the day of. And a lot of it had to do do with required documents, uh, the eligibility documents for the various streams. And it's not really surprising that the providers for the English test IRCC requires, their sites crashed as well. CellPip, for example, had technical difficulties one week in to the announcement on April the 12th. Slots were booked solid until December of this year for IELTS, for example, here in the Toronto region. I'm not sure what's going on in Vancouver. I spoke to another practitioner in Vancouver. Well, some of them are truckers, which I believe are actually part of, you know, listed frontline workers that would qualify for this. Mm -hmm. They have special exemption when traveling to the United States. 
So that would have allowed them to unlock, you know, IELTS test dates in the US. Sadly, not the case for other people who were in mm-hmm. Canada. And at that point, Ontario was actually at the peak of its third wave of uh, COVID mm-hmm. infections and the ICUs were, you know, filling up very quickly here. So there were lockdowns and all of the, a lot of test dates were canceled, essentially, in the lead up to the, you know, opening of the program. What's interesting is I understand that there were some suggestions put forward to the department the, to delay the launch of the program in light of these circumstances, in light of this, these circumstances. <laughs> but IRCC persisted and uh, they insisted on launching it on the 26th. And, you know, one day, one whole day later, the uh, International Student Graduates Program, it was essentially the stream, it was yeah. full. As of uh, last I checked, it was two days ago, there were about 1,500 healthcare worker applications in the out of 20,000, that is. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, we're closer to, to, to halfway for the uh, frontline workers that are not healthcare. But, you know, as a kind of like a debrief to this, the good, the bad, and the ugly, I suppose, is that the good is that there's this program, though specifically crafted to address the fact that we have a lot of temporary residents in Canada, whether they be international students or workers, who are providing important critical care and critical work for Canada to survive through a pandemic. And they were given a chance to essentially make their stay in Canada permanent. So that's the good. The bad was, you know, there, there could have been a better way to execute it, in my opinion. I know for a fact that the CBA wanted to ensure, the Canadian Bar Association, that is, that the CBA wanted to ensure that clients will be adequately represented by counsel where, you know, the clients would choose to have an immigration representative, be it a consultant, a lawyer, or a notary in Quebec. There were, you know, to and from to and fro conversations between the department and the bar. You know, the online platform is specifically designed for the applicant to do it themselves, for example. There's no third, uh, there's no representative access, you know, in contrast to say, for example, the GCMS system, right? Mm -hmm. So in a way that really presents problems, like problems that are actually guaranteed by law that people should have access to counsel. So it's an access Mm -hmm. to justice issue, right? So that's the bad. And then the ugly was just, you know, it was chaotic, mostly because it was, you know, not a lot of time. And to immigration's credit, you know, that is a very challenging program to roll out in such a short time span of time. I just wish that they had delayed it for a couple of weeks. This would have bought them time. And not only for them, but also for potential candidates, because, you know, test dates were running out, right? But yeah, so so that's kind of like, you know, my post-mortem, yeah. if I can put it that way, for, for that. But, you know, understand that this program is still running. The program is still running until November. The yeah. two streams for frontline workers, healthcare and, you know, essential frontline workers, still open and very much so for the French streams. People keep forgetting about these three other streams, actually. Yeah. There's no cap to that. So if you have French, you should mm-hmm. probably think about trying to maybe make it for November. Uh, mm-hmm. In that regard, if you can hit that CLB four or five, depending on the program that you're applying to, it's still possible. There's no cap. 
And just a few days ago, as a final point, IRCC published the program delivery instructions on how they are going to assess the applications uh, under this particular program. And it's very interesting to me because number one, it's been close to a month that the program has been running and uh, the PDIs were only published now. Uh, you know, it talks about the ugly side of it, that it could have been better rolled out, in my opinion. It basically, to me, just like, you know, I understand it's challenging from the part of the department, but it's also going to talk about like governance and transparency on the whole. Why the rush? Maybe, maybe there's a reason why they're doing it. Maybe there's something we don't see from, you know, from a layperson perspective. But at the same time, something so important has to be, you know, done carefully. Like you said yourself in another episode, when we're doing paper-based application or any application for that matter, we try to do it very slowly so that mistakes are avoided. Yeah, I mean, this is totally counter to that uh, principle, right? Yeah, I just had a, a couple things and I've been thinking about them over the last little bit. One is I, I, I wouldn't underestimate that this release also has a role in another topic that we talk a lot about is international student supply. Because, you know, when you talk about trying to encourage and continue the, the billions of dollars that international students bring in and a year right. that there's a huge shortfall, you kind of have to give them some glimmer of hope at the end of the tunnel and a program that's a bit random, a bit like, Hey, there's, you know, <laughs> 40,000 spots available, come get it, you know, might work to that encouragement of some individuals to come here to actually pursue <laughs> future studies. So, you know, I, I think that that I've been trying to rationalize that a bit. And I think that that does make sense from a promotion perspective. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I think, the second big feedback I've been getting from individuals, and we're seeing this, of course, in listserv discussions, is the fact that, and we kind of predicted it with the speed thing, because there is no file number that was generated automatically. Many individuals, after rushing to their applications, found that there was something that they have to add. Yes, it's now a bit of a nightmare to try and follow up on that without a file number because your traditional ways of using case specific inquiries and, and those type of things don't work without a file number. Now, if it's an, if it's a supporting document, remember the R10 rule is suspended, except if it's a document that pertains to eligibility, let's say, for example, you uploaded the wrong file for your language test. Maybe you had completed an IELTS academic not too long ago, maybe a year ago, and then you saved it in the same folder in your computer and you uploaded that by mistake because it says IELTS, right? That could be a problem. That's just an automatic no, I, I imagine, because it's eligibility question. But then, you know, we there is like a design to this. You're right. Like, I like your point about rationalizing this and trying to figure out like what Canada is trying to do. And I remember from one of the back and forth discussions between the executives over at the CBA and the department. So what, what now, whether the people who don't actually make, make it to this program, well, there are other programs. And I think Mark Hothi, uh, the president of the immigration law section over at the Canadian Bar Association, said it right that you know it's not like all these other programs are going to disappear first of all there's a canadian experience class the federal skilled worker class will inevitably open up again there's also the plethora of provincial nominee programs across the country and if memory serves me right 
Mark also said something along the lines of the express entry drawback in February, February 13th, the 27,000 and change people uh, who got their permanent residence, invitations that is, that basically tanked a lot of the provincial nomination programs. And he was specifically talking about Alberta's. Uh, He said that Alberta was fine, according to the province, the government, except that, you know, if the government of Canada did something similar again, it might cause a problem. And I'm not sure if they coordinated, if the department actually coordinated with the provinces this time around for the TR to PR pathway. I certainly hope they did. Yeah. Now that that's a that's a really good point. Moving forward too, and and this is maybe more relevant to the work that I hope to be doing in this program. I'm doing a lot of reapplications, reconsiderations. Obviously, for this program, there doesn't look like to be a reapplication, but there I think reconsiderations will be a big part of this as well because right. individuals will be refused, and it'll be for issues that are you know more technical or administrative in nature. Right. You may want to seek administ- a, a, a reconsideration. I'm going to be dropping very very soon, if not before this episode comes out, airs a copy of IRCC's internal guide on reconsiderations for temporary uh, residents. And I guess this also extends to permanent resident applications, which I think will be really interesting. A lot of it's already online in the form of the H&C guide, but it was, it was always bizarre to me that IRCC didn't have specific instructions on reconsideration for the actual applications outside of humanitarian compassionate grounds. So it seemed like a a bit of a website flaw. Speaking of website flaws, I think there's also going to be a lot of litigation, as you mentioned, on this guide, on the PDIs, the eligibility being released after the applications are submitted because you're going to have applicants who say who say that they did not know the case to be met when they applied uh, and that it, you know the officers have fettered their discretion right. treating guidelines as law after the fact of these applications uh, redefining terms that weren't defined earlier right. it, it definitely is a bit of an issue from my perspective one I'll be studying especially as these new instructions I've just briefly glanced over them but they seem to add a lot more meat to stuff that wasn't in the initial <laughs> yeah. instruction, right? And and, and might be... It's, it's right up your alley, Will. Like when you talk about uh, post-graduation work permits as creatures of policy, instead of being creatures of regulation or, or, or the statute itself. And for our lay people uh, who are listening in, what that means is that, you know, the post-graduation work permit finds its basis on public policy manuals instead of the immigration and refugee protection regulations. Say, for example, there are specific types of work permits that are actually issued out of the regulation because the regulations spell it out. The post-graduation work permit isn't spelled out specifically. It's under Section 205, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, But it's detailed in the public policy manual. And essentially, what we're seeing here for the TR2PR pathway is a parallel, this time through the Act, Mm -hmm. because this is under Section 25.2, under public Mm -hmm. policy, when the Minister of Immigration exercises his or her discretion to create pathways to permanent residence. And as Will said, it's interesting because will you know officers adjudicating these applications for permanent residence treat the manuals as law, as if it was straight out of parliament, for example. Yeah. So that'll be interesting and might be subject to a lot of litigation, a lot of reconsideration applications. And thank you, Will, for posting that you know manual for, for reconsideration. That's going to be very, very helpful to I know for the members of the bar, for example, and for people who are even self-representing, because they will at least have a modicum of an understanding of 
how to actually deal with immigration if they their application is refused out of a technicality, for example. And, and there's a really interesting line that just like, I, I, I'm paraphrasing here, but just disagreement with the officer is not a grounds for reconsideration. So always remember that just, <laughs> just not agreeing with them or not being happy or pleased with the decision is, is not itself a ground. So a lot of reconsideration requests I find are submitted really sort of reactionary. Like I got refused <laughs> in the next moment. They're like, why you made a terrible decision? Like, I want to speak to the manager. Yeah, um, that, that, that kind of approach, whereas I think the more you study it, there really should be a structure in this and, and hitting key legal points so that the officers who are looking at these instructions are, are processing that. But again, I'm just very, very surprised that a program of this magnitude would have the eligibility guide come out after people have already applied. So, you know... Well, the, yeah, the, the instructions for sure. The, the guide itself was less than 24 hours. And to yeah. me, that was astounding. It came out at around 3 p.m., just you know, at around the time that Minister Mendicino was making his stump speech on uh, television. And if memory serves me right, there was, you know, there were two people who were actually invited who would benefit from the program, which was nice. But at the same time, I wish he had done it maybe a few days before the program had actually launched so that people had a chance to actually like, prepare. Because let me give you a little bit of an anecdote. Here in my neighborhood, I live in Malton in Mississauga, which is a you know immigrant working class community um, here in the greater Toronto area. And in the interest of full disclosure, my cousin is one of the people who may have benefited from this program. And the minute that my cousin heard the, you know, read the guide, my cousin asked me like, okay, do I need a photo or a digital photo? A photo that is taken from a studio, that is. So you know, we've been given in conflicting instructions saying that it's an electronic application. You can, you know, take a photo using your camera, for example, your phone camera, just download one of those apps and that would be okay. Or do I need to go to a studio? Now, the guide was released less than 24 hours before. When Keep in mind, this was in the middle of a pandemic during the third wave in Ontario. They released the guide and says you need to go to a studio because you need to actually have it dated and signed and stamped. This is standard stuff for PR photo specifications. And lo and behold, there were about 50 to 70 people lined up at the shoppers in our neighborhood. Wow. By the way, our neighborhood is one of those hotspots that had multiple yeah. pop-ups. So, yeah. I mean, could it have been done better? Yeah. Absolutely. You know, this is something that could have been clarified really quickly by Twitter, for example. They could have communicated that digital photos are fine. You know, if it's a digital application, I don't really see the value of having it done by a photo studio. I'm not the policymaker or the designer of this program. Maybe there is a reason why they needed to do that. Maybe they needed to prove that the photo was taken in Canada, for example. Who knows? But if it had been released a day before, it yeah. would have prevented a mad rush to the photo studios, for example. Mm -hmm. And remember, again, locked, lockdown. There were a lot of like photo studios that were actually closed. So every one of them just went to shoppers. I'm, I would not be surprised that there are a lot of ineligible photos. I'm wondering how many people will, you know, of the 40,000 who did not go into a, a shop and, you know, use yeah. Photoshop or try to do it. What right. will happen to those applications? I do urge for leniency, though, I think in the middle of a pandemic, yeah. they refuse someone because they didn't do that. It's kind of akin to the spousals being re returned because of a lack right. of a postal code. 
Right. Or Ottawa not being identified as being in Ontario. That's my favorite one. Absolutely. <laughs> but I think it'll boil down to training. And I'm glad that the guide is actually out now, it regardless is. of, you know, the, well, not, not just the guide, but also the delivery instructions, right? Because this allows, this is basically more akin to IRCC's tradition of more transparency. And they're moving towards a more communicative and client-centered approach. So this is a win, I think. But you're right, like, you know, I hope they do exercise their discretion if there's those minor discrepancies or inconsistencies with the applications, just because everyone was in a rush. You know, people were patient with IRCC. I hope they are also patient with, uh, you know, the applicants who managed to put in their applications under duress, if I can describe it that way. But, you know, it brings me back to the R10 rule for the photos. I don't think it's an eligibility question. If there's a problem, exactly. if, if there's a defect to the photo, I think the officer should use their discretion and say that, listen, the R10 rule doesn't apply. I need new photos. Can you please take photos again and send it to me by web form? That would have that would be like the best way to deal with it. I know it's going to bog down because as far as I understand, they're going to try to process 40,000 out of the 90,000 within this year. They really want to use this as a means to essentially meet the 401,000 target for this year. That being said, if they keep doing these requests for information, it's going to bog it down. So it'll, it'll be interesting how it'll work out, right? Yeah. And yeah. 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 That's really, that's super fascinating. Any, any, I wanted to also give a, a public uh, announcement in, in, in the event that it's not, uh, we don't know exactly when this episode will come out for, for reasons of our, our scheduling, but if it's out uh, and it's already published, uh, LJ has some comments in an upcoming uh, Toronto Star piece, sharing his expertise and sharing his experiences with the TR to PR pathway. And I'm really looking forward to reading that. I think it, it, it will really showcase the work that LJ has been doing for his clients and also, yeah, his knowledge and study of this program. And he, he's one of the, the experts on this nationally. So I know uh, you're not allowed to use that word yourself, I think, and lost not society in advertising. So no, I, will, uh, I will do it for you. He is one of the best. So anyways, look forward to, uh, to reading your comments. And of course, if anyone ever has any problems with the program moving forward, both our respective firms and, and, and that's the kind of work we do and we love to do is fixing problems. Well, thank you so much for joining us for today's episode and we hope to see you in the next. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care.